Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I'm your host each week where after six years and 300 plus episodes, I'm privileged to bring to you on behalf of the world's most trusted leadership firm, Franklin Covey, hopefully fascinating conversations around the topic of leadership, recognizing this is a broad topic, is it not how to execute strategy, how to manage your time more effectively, how to be a better builder of a high trust culture, how to be a better communicator, more influential and collaborative leader, maybe as a leader in an organization, maybe you're an informal leader in your home or community, but each week we like to shine what I think is an increasingly powerful spotlight onto thought leaders around the world that have expertise in topics both in the center of or adjacent to leadership. Our guest today is Bo So. He is a former journalist, currently a student at the Harvard Law School, and the author of the immediately applicable book, Good Arguments. The tagline is how debate teaches us to listen and be heard. Bo is, now get this, Bo is the two-time debating world champion. Harvard Law School students watch out. Bo, welcome to On Leadership. G'day, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on the program. So, Bo, you have a fascinating journey. Before we get into the, the mechanics, if you will, of being a good debater and a great communicator, I'd love to have you rewind and reorient all of our listeners and viewers around the world to your journey from South Korea to Australia to the U.S. It's a fascinating early upbringing that actually led you to talk about and focus on and become an expert in this conversation around good arguments and how to be a better communicator and debater. Thanks for that, Scott. So I moved when I was eight from South Korea to Australia without speaking the English language. Um, and I learned what a lot of people who make such a move learn, which is that the hardest thing about crossing language lines is adjusting to real life conversation and that the hardest conversations to adjust to are disagreements. That's when the rhythms of speech break down, people interrupt, passions begin to run. You get that kind of defensive posture settling in. And, you know, as one of a handful of certainly Korean kids, Asian kids in the school, maybe the only one who was so uncertain in his language abilities, um, I felt that my differences from my peers would mark me out as an outsider. And the combination of those two things, the language part, the um, sensitivity to difference, the threat that I felt from that uh, made me resolve to be very agreeable. And I think it's an experience that people in different settings have where they go into a room where they don't know very many people and they suddenly become very um, smiley in a slightly distant way. They nod a lot and they keep a lot of their thoughts to themselves. And I thought I had found a groove in conflict avoidance and agreeableness. Um, I thought I'd found a pattern, a, a rhythm in which I could ride out the rest of my life. And the thing that switched for me was a promise that my fifth grade teacher made me, which was that on the debating team, when one person spoke, no one else did. And for me, who had been interrupted and spun out of conversation, um, afraid to engage in that back and forth, that 
promise was pretty irresistible. And, and through that, I discovered a community, a body of knowledge, a, a mode of engagement, not only with my own thoughts, but with others and through them, the whole world around me um, that has since taken me all over the world and, and continues to do so. Bo, let's get into some of the things you did well to become the two-time debating world champion. Rewind a bit and talk about maybe some communication styles you had to stop doing and learn new, things that were perhaps maybe natural to your family or cultural upbringing or a result of this massive cultural shift from speaking Korean and moving to Australia and you know a preteen age. What are some of the things you mastered to become a uh, superior debater? The first was I was, you know, willing to pay a price, which was um, spending a great deal of my uh, social time practicing in this craft. Um, you know, I, I, schools can be tough. It's tough. So if uh, your main identity is being a debater. So I think one part of it is just kind of committing to the bit. And and um, that seems to me the first one, the the willingness to put in a certain measure of work. In terms of the particular communication styles, I mean, it's interesting. I think the hardest thing for people in my position, and I think there may be listeners who are not migrants, who are not crossing language lines, but who, because they're human and they're placed in human circumstances, sometimes feel uneasy in their skin. Um, and, and in my experience, that is not just the people at the bottom rungs of an organization, it's people all throughout. Um, for them and for me, the thing I had to get over was the fear of speaking out. So it was that initial leap of confidence in saying, I'm going to put forward my view because to remain silent would be to um, diminish myself, to betray the part of myself that was kind of dying to get out to say something. Um, and it was a leap, leap of faith in the other person as well. So um, that burst of courage, that that moment of being able to take the jump, um, that was the hardest part. And when I did that, uh, this is the last thing I'll say, I learned a, a strange thing, which was that what I had considered my biggest weakness in terms of my communication style, that I spent a lot of time listening, that I tried to read a room before I made any kind of intervention. I found that as long as you can find that courage to speak up, what seems like a series of disadvantages can turn out to be an advantage, especially in a world where um, there's a lot of chatter and a lot of noise. Rewind a couple thousand years you write about the philosophers, the Stoics, if you will, about some of the way in which they debated and asked questions and communicated, uh, argued. What, what should we be reminded of in 2023, 2024? What are some of the key principles that have literally or should have survived thousands of years that perhaps are dying because of the way in which we communicate and and argue, and our tension spans, our tempers, our passions. What should we be reminded of, of what the greats taught us that can help us to be better arguers and communicators? Two things come to mind. The first is um, 
the rhetorical tradition coming out of ancient Greece always saw argument as a craft, uh, as a form of work, as maybe even a, a, a form of art. And these days we're kind of into authenticity and expressing ourselves. And we have this idea that as long as we speak our truth, that's somehow going to transfer to the other side. And of course, it's the case that we want to be authentic and we want to um, give an account of ourselves and, and, and feel free to do that. But I think we're in danger in a broadcasting age, in um, an age of the self, to lose the part of it that says there's a work and a craft here. Um, and so one thing that comes to mind is, you know, I use this term progimnismata. Um, I think that's correct, uh, which was a series of written exercises um, the Greeks engaged in where before making an argument, they would kind of go through using the basic structures of an argument and just write in their notebooks um, the argument that they were preparing for. And even when they were not preparing for a debate uh, or a particular disagreement, hypothetical points that they might make. So that kind of craftsmanship, which I try to impart in the book, um, is something we have to recover. And the second thing that I would say is, um, I think one thing that uh, those philosophers, older conceptions of rhetoric and disagreement got right, is that it's really intimately connected to um, our obligations as citizens, right? And so, of course, it's the case that disagreement is going to help us in our day-to-day -day lives, better friends, family members, colleagues, leaders. Um, but those things are not separate from what we owe one another in a community. And that sense of public mission, um, I think, is something we have to recover as well. Uh, I'd like you to metaphorically place yourself in a, at an organization's conference room. Let's say it's a marketing team or a sales team or an operations team, analytics team, eight to 10 people in the room, and someone is preparing to make or rebut an argument. What are some of the principles that we tend to neglect or get wrong when we are preparing for or making an argument? And you talked about how some of the great philosophers would write down the cadence, the architecture, the importance, the unimportance, what's true, what's not true. Just give us some of the basic building blocks of how we should better prepare in a fairly extemporaneous flashpoint temper kind of world, what are some of the things we should all reground ourselves in to make sure we are better at arguments with maybe out becoming argumentative where the culture, the trust, and the fabric becomes um, tense versus intense? Yeah, it's a terrific question. Um, I'll give you first of all, how a debater thinks about an argument. And I think it's not the only way to think about um, uh, an argument or a structure for an argument, but it's a way that I think has has some merits that, that we can discuss. So the starting place in debate is saying that any argument that you want to make has to do two things. So let's imagine you're arguing that we should all be... Um, uh, that people should have flexibility to work from home, right? That's kind of a dispute you, you might imagine in a workplace. And you're saying we should all have the freedom to work from home because it'll make us more productive. There are two things that that argument has to do. 
The first thing is you have to show that the main claim you're making, which is that this is going to make us more productive, is actually true, right? So that's the truth claim. If it's not right, if it's not truthful, then you don't have legs to stand on. The second thing you have to then do is to show um, what's called importance, which is the fact that the main claim is true gives us enough of a reason to accept your conclusion. So the fact that this is going to make us more productive is enough of a reason um, to give people this freedom to choose whether they work from home or not. So productivity is more important than workplace morale, for example, or some form of accountability or other things that people might care about. So the beginning place of argument construction and responding to an argument is being clear what exactly you're objecting to. And I think a lot of frustrations in the workplace um, in personal settings to come from those kinds of half rebuttal types where you're saying, I'm not happy about this, but it's a bit unclear what the nature of your objection is so that all we really know is that you're not happy about this. Um, so I think the first thing is clarity about what you're objecting to. Are you saying the point I'm making is untrue or that it doesn't support my conclusion? I would start there. And the second thing, um, in terms of a principle to bring into um, refutation or responding to an argument is to recognize that the point of rebuttal um, is as much creative as it is destructive. And what I mean by that is the point is not to defeat the other person um, in an argument, right? In a workplace setting, it's to make progress on a certain problem whether that be who we hire, what plan we adopt, what strategy we take. And so the final step that um, debaters have to learn is once they've given the objection, you have to give a better answer, right? So I've, I've explained why I think your position is untrue. Here's what I think it is instead. And I think that um, additional step, which is called the counterclaim sometimes, um, that's how debates can be creative and generative. And I think that is the key to uh, clearing up what I think is a misconception about debates, which is that it's an essentially destructive rather than creative activity. Bo, you and I met literally 20 minutes ago off air prepping for this interview. I feel like I know you because I've read your book, but uh, I want you to debunk an idea. Uh, if I had to make an animal association with you and I, I would say, I'm more of a hyena and you're more of a koala. <laughs> so let's just go um, with that. Say that again? I'm a what am I? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like a hyena. You know what a hyena is? I do, but that's such a, it's, it's not a very flattering. Well, I, did, I wasn't trying to be flattering to me, but just go with this for a moment. Go with this. Okay, I'm with Let's just say I'm more of a hyena and you're more of a okay. koala, meaning I find you to be very uh, self-regulated. You're very calm. You're very deliberate. You don't seem to me easily excitable. On the opposite end, I am multi-passionate about everything. I'm like an argument heat-seeking missile. I love conflict. And so to the extent those are funny um, ends of a continuum, dispel my idea that highly energized, passionate, physically intense people make better or perhaps worse debaters, successful arguers than maybe people like you that I would at first blush say is a little more measured, a little more temperate. 
those are those are funny, hopefully, and not insulting polarizations. Talk <laughs> about what your experience has showed. Are there certain personality types that make for a better debater? You talked about the rhythm of speech. I'm guessing the cadence and tone and pitch and inflection are probably important parts of being a solid debater. Take that anywhere you'd like it to go. I, lo I love that. I mean, I've, I've, I've never had... Um such a question <laughs> and i'm happy enough to be representing um the koalas of the world is one of the australian uh national animals although i, I think the koala is mostly asleep so i, I hope i'm not putting well i could have said sloth but i thought that would have been insulting <laughs> i was just meaning like lovable and you know with me people's blood pressure raises <laughs> which is good if you want me to evacuate you from a burning building. With you, I'm guessing people's blood pressure lowers because you're so approachable. Anyway, regardless of how insulted you are about me comparing no, you to no, a sleep No, no, I'm not at all. Um, I'll say two things. So one is, um, you know, one, one kind of interesting thing about the, the finals uh, when you look at the people who have won the World Universities um, Debate Championships, which is one of the competitions that I won, people win in different ways, right? And so there are hyenas, there are koalas, there are uh, maybe not turtles, but there are other kinds of animals. It's a zoo there. And so that makes me think debating is less about internalizing one particular style um, it is about having a baseline and, and making sure the, the basic mechanics of understanding a topic, making an argument, rebuttal, rhetoric, it's all there. But once it is, there's tremendous freedom to work out your own style. And I think that is one of the really exciting things about um, the activities. So there are many ways up the mountain is what I would say. I would say, I, I would you know, in terms of my own style and how I think about that, um, it has a lot to do with listening, right? And I think the point about self-regulation is well taken because um, for me, when you get pretty good at debating, there there's added temptation to rush in, right? You feel like you've heard this before. You feel like you've done this before. You feel like you can, um, outpace this other person on across the table from you. And um, those are the times when people tend to make mistakes, when they're sure, when they're confident. And so those are the times when um, you have to be extra slow. And you wouldn't be the first time person to say that I've overcompensated in that regard. Well, I ask it because I, I was thinking more about my style versus your style, is my debate style would be to be well-prepared, I would be probably uh, extemporaneously successfully pummeling, like think kangaroo, not necessarily <laughs> hyena. But I also think that I might become overly emotionally uh, fatiguing or that I actually like people with your complimentary personality because you usually, you usually defeat me because of your credibility that I think is often associated with someone more measured, more gathered. Maybe it's a, maybe I'm just projecting that I actually like a personality trait that you employ. I, I, I like who I am and my delivery style, and I also would like to become a little more measured, a little more contemplative. I tend to confuse my opinions with facts. I often present my feelings 
as facts, is there any advice you would give people like me who may have great, have built great positional power or influence because of our personality, our energy, even our vocabulary, when we might need to temper or moderate that to become a little more influential through patience and a better listener? Yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, you know, and what I'm thinking the whole time you're giving your description are the things that I envy about your communication style, right? And and people like you. And um, I think that is our circumstance, right? The, the grass always being greener and the great yeah. joy of it is um, if we can't always emulate the other person, we can be in conversation with them. And, and, and that is a real joy and a, and a gift to this that you cannot be a kind of complete package um, in in this regard. So, in terms of um, things that I would I would say to people who are kind of more excitable, charismatic, um, passionate, I think first of all it helps to get out of your head a little bit. So, in debating, we have a series of exercises called the side switch exercises, which is um, once you've thought about what your position is, what your arguments are, and you've marshaled out this great case, and uh, in your words, you're ready to start pummeling people, the world with it. One thing that debaters learn to do is they turn to another sheet of paper and they write out the best arguments they can for the other side, right? Or they look back on what they've prepared through the eyes of someone who firmly disagrees and try to poke as many holes in it as you can find. And the benefit of that is um, there needs to be a little bit of a gap between the subjective experience of certainty of having arrived at the right answer and the external representation, right? The, um, the, 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 the preacher kind of persuasive mode. And that switched position of thinking, I could have missed something here. I could have gotten something wrong. Um, I think that helps a lot. And I think the second thing um, that I would just say, and 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 I think this is another misconception about debate, is once you engage in enough of these disagreements and you're very honest with yourself um, in separating out, not uh, on one hand being right or wrong, that's one thing, but on the other hand being persuasive and unpersuasive, and you can honestly say to yourself, I was right in that discussion, but I was unpersuasive. Um, that experience of losing, of knowing you're not going to be your most persuasive self in every argument, um, I think that has a kind of humbling effect as well. And so uh, I would say, especially to people who are very confident, um, very certain in their own voice, um, particularly when that certainty is buoyed by rank in a hierarchy, that they try to be as honest in accounting, um, not whether they were correct, but whether they were persuasive. And I think that's one way in which um, people can continue to improve. One of our co-founders' most profound adages, Stephen Covey, who said many wise things, he said, you know, effective leaders are often more concerned with what is right than being right. And it's an adage that I, I, I try to remind myself of daily, especially with my family, because I think much of my career, successful career, has been about being right versus always what was right. What was right for the culture of the team? What was right for our shareholders, our clients, other people? 
uh, I have a lot of self-awareness around that. To the point you just made, you have a chapter in your book that teaches the concept of how to make a point. And you share a story of a debate you were in earlier in your life. I think you were still living in Australia. Maybe you were in high school. And you talk where you, had, you were debriefing a debate competition you were in. And you talked about how you were raised on the principle of truth conquers all. And I'd love to have you expand on this idea. Is that true? Is it a truism that actually doesn't happen in, 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 in most organizations? What's the best way to make a point? And how often are we naive at thinking, well, truth just conquers all, so it'll all work out? For me, it was an almost religious notion, right? That um, truth is manifest, it's undeniable, its presence is physical and tangible. And, um, you know, I'm still pretty young, but the more I see of the world, the more complexity I see. Um, and, and certainly we're living at a time when the idea of truth is more contested than, um, than it has in, in certainly in other periods of the world that I've been around for. So we're living at a difficult time in that regard. The basic framework is the one that I shared earlier about the two things that an argument must do. And the part that, um, which is the point about showing that your main claim is true and that it justifies the conclusion. And the part that I'll elaborate a little bit um, is that point about importance, right? So um, that was the example we had was about giving people freedom to work from home if they wished. And the main argument there was about productivity. And I mentioned one of the things you're going to have to show is productivity is more important than some other things the listener might care about. And one of the things that you'll notice there is that point about importance of showing that your main claim justifies your conclusion is actually not really about you, the speaker. It's about the listener and what they care about. Right? And so it's one thing to be in possession of what you believe to be the truth. It's another to make it connect to the person who's listening to you. And it may well be, this is something we haven't gotten into yet in the conversation, that you need other ways of engaging with the other person first, right? So you may have to ask them questions about what it is that they value. You may have to develop a relationship with them. So there's a kind of a, a basis of trust from which to have the conversation. What I'm insisting is that disagreement has to be one of the tools um, available to you. And I think once you have that knowledge of what the other person cares about, what's likely to connect, saying, here's why I think the truth of this argument should be persuasive to you. Um, I think that, that that's the step um, that the work of persuasion requires. Bo, this next question is a lifeline to my wife, Stephanie. You write a chapter <laughs> called Self-Defense, How to Defeat a Bully. Now, I'm delighted to report that I'm only months away from celebrating my 15-year anniversary with my first and only and last spouse. We have three boys that everybody knows that plot every night when we're asleep on how to destroy our marriage. And my wife and I usually make some reclaiming progress over coffee in the morning before they get back up to take on the day known as our marriage. Uh, my wife would tell you it's impossible to win an argument with Scott Miller because I will just um, fatigue you into submission. I'll go as long as it takes, including 15 years. I don't like to think of myself as a bully, 
because I'm in denial, what advice would you give people listening that may be married to, working for, working with, living with, living next to, serving on a committee with, a bully? Maybe how would you define a bully and what are some tips on how to coexist and to quote you, even defeat a bully? So I'll um, give kind of two practical tips or bits of advice and then extrapolate from that what I what I think a bully is, what kind of challenge they pose. So the first thing that we learn as debaters is um, there is a kind of playbook for people who argue from bad faith. And in the book, I go through um, four kind of personalities, right? They're the people who um, are dodgers, who um, kind of avoid the main point that you're making, people who twist your words, people who wrangle, which is they say no to everything and yes to nothing. And of course, there's the liar. And in response to those kinds of personalities, those common tactics, um, we can develop a kind of self-defense and a playbook of our own. So to give you an example, to the person who says no to everything, the wrangler, the strategy um, or the tactic that we're taught is to turn around and ask the other person, well, then what are you for, right? So if you're proposing something and they can think of a million reasons why it won't work, you propose something else, they can think of a million reasons why that won't work. You turn around and ask, well, what's your proposal? Then all of a sudden, it's a comparison. It's not you playing defense the whole time. So I think there's a set of kind of techniques um, to be learned. Now, the reason why that's not enough of its own has to do with what I think a bully is, which is that a bully is very rarely, in my view, interested in debate, where the point is a kind of an equal and fair exchange of ideas. Um, and the fifth personality that I talk about in the book is called the brawler. And this is the person who seems to be engaging in a debate because they're conversing with you, but actually they are hijacking it, changing the nature of the interaction into something more like a brawl, right? So I think we all have memories of being on the playground and um, we think we're having a kind of a rational argument about, um, uh, you know, primary school issues. <laughs> and then uh, the other person makes a joke about your mother, right? Or, or they call you a name or they swear or they act offensively. And one dynamic on that that playground exchange is that they've changed the game. It's no longer a debate. And so we as individuals, as members of a community, a family, workplace, have to have some idea about what kind of conversation we want to have, what we want to be doing when we're debating, so that we can say, hey, is it a debate that you're wanting to have, or is it a brawl, or is it something else? And uh, because I'm not interested in that other kind of conversation, being able to draw the line on the kind of conversation we want to have, um, I think is another important way to disempower bullies. Okay, let's finish today's conversation with you saving the institution of marriage in the world. <laughs> you write a chapter, chapter eight, titled Relationships, How to Fight and Stay Together. I'm going to read a passage out of the book. I'm going to have you extrapolate what you'd like to leave everybody with that's listening. Uh, bear with me. The manufacturers of 
the laundry detergent Finish once commissioned a study on the state of dishwashing in the United States. Bear with me. The survey found that six out of 10 respondents experienced stress while doing the dishes and that three quarters of them pre-rinsed their dishes. But the most interesting set of findings concerning household disputes was that the average household reported having 217 arguments related to dishwashing in a year, or 18 arguments per month. They also mostly argued about who should empty the dishwasher, but also fought over dishes that had been left to soak in the sink. You say the results seem to underline two things people implicitly understood about disputes. One, some of our most persistent disagreements with those are with those who we are the closest with. And number two, these disagreements are waged over trivial matters. How true is that? I don't think my wife and I have actually ever fought over that particular topic. I'm not sure what that says about us. Talk about... um, Obviously, that's funny and witty and interesting, but what would you say are some practical insights that each of us who are in any kind of relationship, roommate, married, not married, lifelong commitment, mother-in-law's in the house, whatever it is, what are some takeaways we all could um, leave with today around how to argue with the people we're the closest with? I think the first thing is... um there's real power in being able to name the disagreement that you're having. And a part of the dynamic in that difficult situation um, that that passage speaks to is that, you know, an argument about the dishes is not really about the dishes, right? It's about the level of respect. It's about the division of household labor, um, whatever it is. And so there has to be a period of working as collaborators to figure out what kind of conversation we're having before you engage in the dispute itself. So I think that's number one. I think the second thing is um, in personal relationships, which, you know, one wonderful feature about them is we love the other person or we're close to the other person. So we're let a lot of our lives overlap, right? So there's lots of opportunities for agreement as well as disagreement. Um, it becomes especially important to choose your battles. And so sometimes, and this is true in debating also, that silence is um, the most effective tool of persuasion that you have or one of the, 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 the tools that you need to rely on. And it may be the most important perhaps for um, maintaining the relationship, right? So, so fighting and staying together which is the essential challenge in this situation. So one framework I give in the book is encouraging people to ask whether a disagreement is real before you jump in, whether it's important enough to justify having the dispute, whether the subject of the dispute is specific enough so that you're going to make progress on it, and whether the two sides are aligned in their reason for wanting to engage in the dispute. So real, important, specific, aligned I call that the RISA framework. And so um, it can be especially hard to do that um, in close relationships. And I talk about some of those challenges, but that's an area where circumspection, 
some amount of forbearance, forgiveness, those other virtues um, become very important. Bo, are you a parent? No. Oh, you will make a great father. So <laughs> I wish true. you well if that's your choice, because had you been I my think dad, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to have to rewrite the whole thing um, when that happens. I think had you been my father, and I loved my father who's now passed, I would be much more likable. <laughs> anyway, it's been a delight. Boso, you are the two-time debating world champion. Your book is Good Arguments, How Debate Teaches Us to Listen and be heard. You are currently a student at the Harvard Law School. What should the world expect from you next? What's next on your horizon that you are announcing here today on Franklin Covey's podcast? You know, the the challenge um, for me um, and that this book is just a partial answer to is how do we build a world in which um, we can make the differences between people work for us and not against us. And uh, I'm still going to be trying to do that. Um, and, and I think that's not the work of one person. It's not the work of one lifetime. But I'm trying to learn as much as I can to, to try and make a contribution on that question. I so wish you and I had been raised on the same block. I think we would be good friends. Different, but very good friends. Bo, nice meeting you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Scott. I appreciate your time. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. Mm -hmm.